Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I uh, I'm streaming from Slovenia, where there's the uh, where there's evening. Um, my guests tonight are Dr. E. Michael Jones and uh, my co-host, um, also from Slovenia, from a first traditional Catholic media, Skutum Fide. Alan Koman, uh, thank you uh, both guys for for joining me for accepting my invitation. I hope this will be a, a great stream. We're going to talk about American elections, about what Dr. E. Michael Jones thinks about them, about what he predicts, about how he analyzes them, and we're going to have a, a semi-philosophical debate about uh, which candidate. Biden or Trump is more Catholic or Catholic-like or Catholic uh, um, suitable for Catholics, sort of say. Thank you, guys, and hi. Hello. 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 Good to see you. Good to see you too. How have you been, Dr. Jones? I've been just great. Is great trying to figure out what's going on here no one knows we're in a state of complete uncertainty right now and the uncertainty is being compounded by the fact that the mainstream media have simply uh, declared biden the winner uh before the votes have been counted uh this is a we're in the middle of a constitutional crisis we're also in the middle of a color revolution I've, i said this i've been saying this for months now the black lives matter protest uh, the uh, Antifa participation in that has just been the lead up to, to the, this moment right now. So as things stand right now, uh, Biden has been declared the, the winner by the press. The press are now saying, the New York Times has now said that basically they get to name the uh, winner in elections. The press gets to uh, name the winner in elections. Uh, the Trump administration has filed lawsuits in all of the contested states uh, demanding a recount. Uh, the law here is that uh, in, on December 12th, I believe it's 12th, 12th or 14th, the Electoral College gets together and they are the ones who cast the votes in their state. So as it stands right now, there are four or five contested states where if the, if the number of electoral votes switch from uh, Biden to Trump, Trump will win. Okay, now, if Trump wins, we are back into the same scenario we've, we've had for color revolutions for uh, almost six, uh, 70 years now. Uh, the classic example, the first example was Tehran in 1953, uh, where the CIA first launched what was called psychological warfare back then, but basically, they deposed the democratically elected leader, Mossadegh, and they put uh, the Shah Reza Pahlavi in his place. This took place, first of all, because the CIA had captured all of the uh, newspapers in Tehran. Television was completely insignificant, and a radio went along with it. Kermit Roosevelt's the man who pulled this off for the CIA. That set the pattern for all the way up to the present. Uh, Guatemala was the next color revolution. It was called psychological warfare back then. Uh, the most recent uh, was um, Armenia. 
2018, Armenia had a color revolution. Pashinian was put in. He's a George Soros puppet. And now there's a huge uh, uproar in Armenia because uh, he signed an agreement with the Azeris, basically selling out the uh, the Arme ethnic Armenians in, in Artsakh. So if what I say is true, uh, what's going to happen is that uh, Trump will be declared the winner by the courts. The New York Times will then say, Trump and the Supreme Court stole the election. The pre, the all of the press will echo that statement, and then Antifa and Black Lives Matter and these revolutionaries will then go to the streets. They'll try to disguise themselves with big crowds. Okay, they will be in the middle of these big crowds. That will give them cover, and then they will start burning down buildings and creating chaos to precipitate a constitutional crisis, hoping then that the military will step in and, and take Trump out of the White House. That's the way I see what's going on right now. Yeah, and at that point, um, I wanted to ask, because either scenario looks like United States is on the verge of civil war. Um, you're there, you're on the spot. What's, what's your take on that? How close to civil war is the United States? Civil war implies armies on two sides. Uh, we do not have that, okay? What we do have is a, a, a very divided country. So if you look at the map uh, of the election, as it stands right now, uh, you've got the entire center of the country going for Trump uh, with wide yeah. margins, okay? You've got the two coasts going for wide margins for uh, Biden, uh, both California and New York. And then you've got certain states in between that, that go, go either one way or the other. The, the typical state in any election is Ohio because it's a combination of both aspects of America. And Ohio went for Trump. There's no question about it. So that's an indication to me that the entire country went for Trump and that the election was stolen. But uh, the, the, the country is deeply divided. There's no question because the, the whatever you want to call it, the left, the Democrats, have become more and more fanatical about the agenda that, that, that they're following. Uh, it's, it started off with like promoting homosexuality, then it was gay marriage, then it was gender bathrooms, then it's gender neutral bathrooms, then it's uh, this, this uh, racism that they're proposing in the name of anti-racism, and, and then the violence. This past summer, the, the violence was the main factor in turning voters in favor of Trump. This is in many ways a replay of the election of 1968 when Richard Nixon and George Wallace ran on a, a platform of law and order and they got over 60% of the vote. They completely obliterated the Democrats because the Democrats were seen then as the party of, of revolution in the streets. Well, everything now is much more than it was in 1968. And I think the results were much more exaggerated. I think the country went Well, except for those those two coasts that I talked about, the country went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Was the I live in a Democratic uh, section, a Democratic county in uh, Indiana. Uh, it went for Trump. I every every day, uh, I'd go past the city hall, and there would be people lines all the way around the block of early voters, uh, and it looked uh, they they were voting for Trump because they were afraid of this violence. They're afraid of this breakdown of law and order. They're afraid of, I don't, I don't know whether it's civil war, but I mean, they're afraid of this conflict coming to South Bend. Yeah, I mean, I was talking about the conflict because as you said, you either have two armies 
and you can but you can have also a guerrilla army and a regular army like it happened in Slovenia during the second world war and that's what i'm asking because you can see some tendencies in the united states of certain groups of people being extremely aggressive if not even organized as a semi-military or guerrilla groups right, such as right. Antifa and Black Lives Matter as well. Right. Well, what's a good indication of that was what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin during the summer. So Antifa showed up. This was clear. There was, there was no local participation in the riots in Kenosha. None. Basically, the police uh, showed up. They, they got a tip. Uh, they showed up at a gas station. There are all these vehicles from out of state, and the guys are filling up canisters of gasoline. These are probably people, Antifa people from Chicago. We will come out when they have the trial. Uh, but basically, the word got out that Antifa is burning down Kenosha. So as a result, uh, this guy, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, shows up with his, uh, with his gun, along with other militia. This, something similar happened in, in uh, Portland. So you got Antifa controlling the center of Portland for months, for three whole months. This created a reaction. The Proud Boys show up. And the police, by this point, are totally exhausted. And they said they just let the two of them battle it out. Well, you can do that to a certain extent if they're just going to beat each over the head with clubs. But when they both showed up uh, armed uh, with weapons, then that's another matter. You, ha you can't just let people gun themselves down in the street. Uh, and that was what happened in, in Kenosha. You basically have this kid. He's like 18, 19 years old. He's got an automatic weapon. There's a mob chasing him down the street. He turns around uh, to confront them with the gun. The guy who's the anti-fi guy who's chasing him raises his hands like this. And then he, the Kyle puts down the gun and then the guy reaches for a gun. He's got a gun in the back pocket and pulls. And before he can pull it out, Kyle shoots him. Now, this is a war crime. This is called false surrender. This is the type of people you're dealing with. You cannot do that. You could be hanged for doing that in battle if they found you doing that in battle. This is the type of confrontation that uh, is waiting to happen. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to predict it, I, uh, but it's possible because you have a lot of people uh, uh, who have guns in this country and some of them form uh, militias. Michigan is a state where they form uh, militias, okay, which is their right under the Constitution. That doesn't mean that the government's going to allow it. So what you saw here in the run-up to the election in Michigan was the attorney general uh, in Michigan, Dana Nessel. She's a Jewish lesbian who was elected with Soros money. And so she hates uh, a certain group of people, namely Trump supporters. Okay, two, two weeks before the election, she holds a press conference and she announces that she has collaborated with the FBI to foil a plot to kidnap the governor of the state of Michigan. This is preposterous, okay? It's pure political theater, and the proof of it was five days later when these people got arraigned, uh, their lawyer said the only person who was advocating violence in this chat group, it turns out it's a chat group, was the FBI agent. So here you've got a situation where Donald Trump appointed the head of the FBI, and now the head of the FBI is collaborating with the the uh, gov the Repu the Democratic administration in Michigan to ensure that he doesn't get Michigan's votes. This is the situation uh, uh, we're we're in right now. Uh, 
have uh, United States of America become a banana republic? Well, uh, what do you yeah. what do you think, Doctor Doctor Jones? Will they? Yeah. First, look. The first thing first thing you do in a banana republic when you have a military coup d'état is you put tanks around the radio station so that the president cannot speak over the radio. That has already happened here. If you want to talk about banana republic tactics here, Trump is being banned from Twitter. Wait a minute. This this means that Twitter and these social media things are more powerful than the president of the United States. This is this is pure banana republic tactics here. Okay? Now, you can this analogy will only go so far because we are in a the technology is much more sophisticated now than in that in that classic situation. The other the other issue here is the military has not shown its hand here. In the, in the United States of America, we have a tradition of the president being the commander in chief of the army. So this would mean, in effect, that it would be treason for them to uh, disobey any orders uh, from the president. Whether that's the actual case is something that we, we will see, because Trump just fired the secretary of defense, Esper. I think he fired him largely because he saw what the head of the FBI had done to him, and he needed someone that uh, he could trust who was not going to engage in some type of coup d'etat. That that That's why I see that guy was removed. Do we have a question, uh, Alan? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll have similar talk on Sunday with, uh, I don't know, sir, uh, Dr. Jones, if you know him, uh, Charles Coulomb. Uh, okay, I know. Yeah. We'll be talking about uh, the death of democracy because what I'm seeing today is basically that. So a, a decline of democracy, and but not as a not in a pessimistic view, but as an opportunity because I myself am a monarchist, and so is uh, Sir uh, Coulomb, and yeah, and most of my friends, and we're going to be discussing the the, the opportunity for maybe a change of political system general in the Western societies, because as we can see, the, the main purpose of democracy is division. Only democracy has 50-50 split voice. This is crazy. The, the, the people is separated like on two poles and that's it. I, I, was, uh, I was scheduled to go to France and speak to the, uh, the Vendée, Les Chouans, the descendants of the Vendée, the counter-revolution in France. Uh, I didn't get to go because of COVID restrictions. But in the middle of the conference, uh, the Duke of Anjou sent a message congratulating them and telling them that uh, he's with them in spirit. He is the direct descendant of uh, Louis XVI. Okay. I, so in France, if they wanted to bring back a monarchy, they would know who to call up on the phone. <laughs> That's never been the situation in America. Uh, I, I know Charles Cologne. I've, I've talked with him. He visited me once. Uh, monarchy has no roots here whatsoever. It is completely impossible. It, it will never work in the United States of America. Uh, Tom Paine said in America, the law is king. And he was right. He was a revolutionary, but he was right. The only tradition we have is the tradition that's in place right now. And what you're seeing now 
is an attack on representative government as it has existed in the United States for 200 years. Okay? That is the problem here. You've, it's the oligarchs who are unhappy with representative government. We cannot, there's no logical, there's no feasible, possible way that America's Americans could uh, abandon that system and introduce a monarchy. The only thing we can do is defend the system as it exists, because I believe that representative democracy can work. The fact that it does work, uh, proof of the fact that it works, is the fact that the oligarchs are, are, are attacking it. I've been saying this for four years now because this attack on representative government began in Indiana in 2015 with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, where basically the, the government of Indiana wanted to protect people from this homosexual terrorism, where these people would come into your business and demand that you go along with their uh, whatever sexual practices. And if you don't, they're going to file a lawsuit against you. This was... Uh, uh, this provoked the oligarchs who then flew into India, Indianapolis and demanded that the state legislature overturn its law, which they did because they were too stupid to understand what was going on. This is an attack against representative government. That's what's going on right now. The oligarchs, through things like Google and, and all of the other social media platforms, have enormous, unprecedented political power. And they are not going to take no for an answer. They're going to use this power to basically destroy the last remnants of representative government. And elections are an integral part of representative government. And if they can get away with stealing this election, that's the end of America. There's nothing left. Talking about stealing the elections, China. What's their involvement? What would you say? I don't think, uh, for, well, if, if they're involved at all, it would be supporting uh, Joe Biden, Biden because yeah. he has had, he is, he is, uh, represents the oligarch ruling class. And the oligarch ruling class has basically outsourced all of America's good paying jobs to China uh, uh, by creating their huge, the huge industrial infrastructure, which they have now, which made them the biggest economy in the world. This is a tragedy for the United States of America, that they allow these people, it's basically Wall Street, uh, the leverage buyout people who basically sold off piecemeal the American industrial base and then outsourced all these jobs to China so that they could make huge profits uh, for on their, on their retail operations. Amazon is still doing this, by the way. But uh, in terms of China, China has not uh, acknowledged uh, Biden's uh, election. They China, have today. They have? Oh, they yeah. did. Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Tell me something I didn't know. I, I know that Russia has not. Russia yeah. has not. Uh, uh, Russia is China. on our side. Yeah. So, but if China did, okay, well, that, yeah. that, that's indication that uh, they do want Biden. And for the reasons that I just mentioned to you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, because I think Trump inflicted quite some damage to China's uh um, well, he, he, he's the one who's basically made the point that China's a problem, that China, uh, uh, that th this outsourcing of uh, good jobs, the outsourcing of the industrial base is uh, a disaster in the long run. And he was going to do something about it. And I think he did do something about it. I was in 
Illinois. They have a, a steel plant now that is now working that in operation that wasn't in operation before Donald Trump came. He's been fighting an uphill battle for four years. Uh, and uh, so, but I mean, the idea is, is sound that you need to preserve the industrial base. Otherwise you'll end up a colony. And that's, yeah. what, that's what's going to happen to us. One of my guests uh, a few days ago, I think a week ago, uh, coined this term um, nationalist economy or national economy uh, in terms of what Trump was doing for four years now. Um, what's your take on that? That is, that is a fundamental principle of reality, a category of reality. And the man who articulated this was uh, Heinrich Pesch in his uh, Summa Economica, uh, Das Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie, uh, which was published in, in German, four volumes in the 1920s, came out in the 1920s. Pesch is very clear about, what, about this. You have the fundamental economic unit is the state. You cannot go beyond the state. If you're talking about a global market, all you're talking, this is Pesh, Pesh is saying this, all you're talking about is the exploitation of wage differentials for the benefit of the oligarchs. The goal of the economy, of the national economy, is the people of that nation. That is the only responsibility that the economy has that any politician has is to use make sure that the resources of the national economy go to the people of that nation that's i, I this is unfortunately uh pope uh francis issued uh, fratelli <laughs> tutti in which he said that basically the goal of the economy is the people of the world as if there's no such thing as national borders you have to maintain national borders in order to protect the people of that nation. It's absolutely, this is a fundamental fact of life. It's a fundamental Catholic principle. And if, if it's been lost, it's because the thought of Heinrich Pesch uh, hasn't got the attention that it deserved. Alesh? He forgot to turn on on his uh, microphone. Forgot to turn on my microphone because I had to mute myself because there were echoes because of my microphone. Okay. So I I, I proposed a, a topic in the beginning um, and it was about Catholicism, Christianity, and uh, the both candidates, um, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, in. Um, in your opinion, which candidate, Joe Biden, is uh, nominally a, a Catholic, supposedly? Um, Donald Trump is not a Catholic, at least nominally, not practically, probably, personally, also not. But in your opinion, for whom should Catholics have been vo voting uh, in this, in this uh, election, Dr. Jones? No, no Catholic in good conscience can vote for uh, Biden, for Joe Biden. The, the, what he professes as his religion is completely irrelevant uh, to his status as a politician. A politician who is a man who acts in a certain way. And if you look at the action of Joe Biden, no Catholic could ever vote for him simply because of his uh, ferocious support for abortion. 
Joe Biden should have been excommunicated because of his support for abortion. But the fact of the matter is that during the, the rise to power, his rise to political power, you've had uh, church leaders like Cardinal McCarrick, uh, the homosexual, uh, who uh, basically allowed people like this. He was uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of uh, Washington, D.C., and he was notorious for allowing these politicians a free pass in claiming that they were Catholic, while at the same time advocating the most ruthless type of uh, antisocial behavior, support of abortion, the support of sodomy, support of all these things. So you have to, you would have to rule out Biden. Now the the scandal here gets even bigger, okay? Because the conference, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, congratulated Biden as the second Catholic president. Uh, now that he's president-elect. Well, first of all, uh, Your Excellency, he's not president-elect, okay? That's only a fiction that has been floated by the New York Times and the rest of the media. We are waiting for the results of the Electoral College, which will determine who is the president-elect, okay? But secondly, to drag his Catholicism into that is a scandal because of the reasons I've already mentioned. No one has been more ferocious in, in, in attacking Catholic moral principle than Joe Biden for his entire career. Well, actually, uh, according to canon law, his latte sentencia excommunicated and he could just easily have an interdict because of his public uh, views on abortion. Yes, and some there are people, priests, who have tried to impo uh, enforce this interdict, which is basically by refusing them communion. Yes, and they have never been supported by the by their bishops. I I invariably, whenever some priest does this, he will be rep reprimanded by the bishop, one way or the other. That's been the sad story uh, of the last forty years: millions of babies dying as a result of this, and the church when it comes down to the hierarchy, simply not backing up the people who wanted to do something about it. Yeah, I have some great Catholic hosts and uh, that was our, our, their position was that the main war in United States in political sense between Trump and Biden is currently happen happening on the level of abortion. So pro-abortion against abortion or pro-life. Well, you, you could see that played out in the uh, Supreme Court latest Supreme Court nomination. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 like, I say it as uh, a Catholic Jewish battle. The fundamental fact of American ethnic life is that oh yeah, Catholic, Protestant, Jew, these are the ethnic groups in America. So as Yugoslavians, you can relate to this because you have the same situation in Yugoslavia, or the former Yugoslavia. Serb, Croat, Muslim. Okay, yeah. it's exactly parallel. Three ethnic groups based on three religions, and they're constantly at war with each other. This has been the history of the United States of America, certainly for the 20th century, when we got Jews in large numbers. Uh, and it goes from the, the let's say the the battle over obscenity uh, in Hollywood in the 1920s, the imposition of the production code by the Legion of Decency in the 1930s, that was Protestants and Catholics coming together to rein in the Jews. After World War II, the Protestants switched sides and they're allied with the Jews against the Catholics. Now you've got the battle over the Supreme Court. It's a battle between Jews and Catholics. 
and it's not, uh, it's no one's allowed to state this. No one's allowed to admit this in public. And so we have to go through these fictions, uh, uh, usually, you know, pro-life, liberal, conservative, all these fictions that deny the real ethnic nature of this conflict. Now, it's not an even battle because uh, the first thing, as soon as a Catholic gets nominated for the Supreme Court, uh, Diane Feinstein or somebody like that who happens to be Jewish will ask, uh, your dogma speaks loudly in you, and we're afraid you're going to impose your views on the rest of America. Well, nobody ever said that to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If there's anyone who imposed her views on the America, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm talking about partial birth abortion. First of all, abortion is a Jewish crusade. Birth control was a WASP Protestant crusade, but abortion is Jewish. That goes all the way back to Bernard Nathanson, who was the Jew who basically started the abortion crusade in New York City. He said it was Jewish. He ended up converting to Catholicism, okay? But he said it was New York Jews who were behind this whole thing, okay? This double standard has continued to the present, okay? So what I suggested to uh, Amy, who got confirmed, I said she should simply say, I will not impose my religious views on Americans any more than Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. She got she got nominated, so I'm glad I'm glad that happens. The big question now is: Is she going to follow through, or is she going to recuse herself when it comes to big issues? That that's the big issue because Catholics are notorious for doing that. Do you see Trump converting to Catholicism? Anything is possible. Uh, anything oh, yeah. is possible. Uh, but, Donald, Donald Trump uh, is a man of complete uh, contradiction. He's a man who's driven by will. To his credit, he's a courageous man. He, I don't know any other person who could have stood up to the attacks that have been leveled against him for the past four years, whether he's going to convert to Catholicism. I mean, he's got a Catholic wife who's a Slovenian, by the way. Uh, you know that. A Slovenian wife. So if who knows what effect she's going to have on him. Do, do you see him uh, or... Are there Americans that see him as a type of Constantine emperor, something like that? Is that a fantasy or? I, I mean, I, th I think he is a, a world historical figure. So I think he's like uh, Alexander the Great. I think he's like Napoleon. I've said before that uh, God is using Donald Trump to bring about the end of the American empire. So in that sense, uh, I'm, I'm referring to what Hegel would have called the uh, list de vernunft, or the cunning of reason. He is, uh, he is bringing about things that he doesn't understand himself. And the best example of that is his policy toward Iran, okay, which is totally wrongheaded, totally stupid, uh, all purely a function of three rich Jews uh, who gave lots of money to the Republican Party. And it's bringing about the exact opposite of what he int should intend. And by that, I mean, uh, he's driving the Iranians into the arms of the Chinese. Okay, he is consolidating the Eurasian landmass when every politician in America uh, knows that foreign policy is based on dividing the Eurasian landmass, the McKinder thesis that came into being in the uh, end, beginning of the 20th century. 
where the, the Navy, the American Navy, the successor of the British Navy, controls the sea lanes so that they can blockade any uh, any port and starve it into submission, which is what Winston Churchill did with uh, Germany after World War One. If you have a rail line connecting Shanghai and Rotterdam, you can't blockade the Eurasian landmass. That has happened on on his watch, and he's made it worse. That you can Google the train, the Chinese train pulling into Tehran. I'm I'm, I'm telling you, I I've just I've been to Iran a number of times. Amazingly, these people like Americans. They, they are the best people in the world for distinguishing between the people and the government. They have a clear understanding that the government is one thing, the people are another. They have this natural affinity. They speak English. Uh, I'm talking about the people I come in contact with. Okay. They would have loved to deal with uh, Mossadegh. Mossadegh was on the cover of Time magazine. They should have cut that deal then with the Iranians. They didn't do it because of the tragedy of American foreign policy. Now you've got this situation where uh, does this mean Iranians are going to have to learn Chinese? It may be. It may mean that they are in desperate straits because of the economic sanctions and they have to any port in a storm. And China is the port in the storm now. And they're going toward China. This is part of the tragedy of the Trump administration. And one of the reasons uh, uh, that he's he will fail in the long run in trying to bring about their their uh their submission well china already took over africa do, do you think middle east east is next i think that they they have much more so in in the eurasian landmass than in than in africa that's why they're building that railroad that's a significant uh, a significant development and uh, uh, tr Trump should be concerned about that, but he hasn't been able to do anything to stop it. The way to stop that, look, it's very simple. The way to stop that is to be nice to the Iranians. <laughs> well, why are you not nice to the Iranians? Well, because Israel controls our foreign policy and you are one of the major instruments of Israeli foreign policy. And so what do you get when you do the bidding of the Jews? Well, uh, guess who endorsed Joe Biden just two days ago. Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is the type of gratitude that these people show after you basically do everything within your power to give them everything they want. Netanyahu immediately uh, uh, congratulates Joe Biden. Uh, there are a couple of interesting questions amongst the viewers. Uh, I know that uh, you, you you believe that uh, being white is part of a uh, identity theft, but there there seems to be this certain reality where a lot of blacks now hate a lot of whites and a couple of viewers uh, seem to problematize the di differences between Malcolm X and MLK Jr. Uh, and there's an interesting uh, um, proposition. Stellar J. Atkins says, 
Malcolm X had flaws, but he had far better morals, character, and instincts than MLK. How would you comment on that, Dr. Jones? First of all, uh, I have... By MLK, they probably mean Martin Luther King. Yeah, Martin Luther King, yes, yes. First of all, we, uh, uh, the, there is racial conflict in the United States of America. I, there's no, I'm not denying that. I'm saying that race is a category of the mind that is, it is not a category of reality, especially when you're talking about the political implementation of race. It is a weapon now being used by the oligarchs. The best example I can give of this is what happened in St. Louis. During this iconoclasm, this wave of iconoclasm, uh, this man showed up in St. Louis and said they had to take down the statue of St. Louis, uh, who was uh, the man after which the city was named. The man who did this said that it was white supremacists who were supporting the statue. Well, it turns out that all the white supremacists were praying the rosary, which means that they were not white, they were Catholics. These were Catholics, but in order to succeed in this plot to tear down the statue, this Umar Lee had to engage in identity theft. He had to steal the identity from the Catholics, impose the white identity on these people, because once you're white, you lose. Once you're white, you're a racist. It's got nothing to do with the color of your skin. It's got to do with the ideology that is being used here, weaponized to uh, create revolution. If you, so what did I say? Wait a minute. It's not a black-white battle. It's a Catholic-Jewish battle because it turns out there's a rabbi behind Umar Lee, Rabbi Susan Talva. Okay, once I identified that, we won. That statue is still standing. Okay, now to get, get to uh, Martin Luther King versus uh, Malcolm X, what we're talking about is uh, ethnic ethnic solidarity, okay? We're talking about the blacks as an ethnic group. The question is, are we going to have integration or are we going to have ethnic solidarity? The United States will not allow a black ethnic uh, uh, nationalist, whatever you want to call it, uh, a, a black ethnic leader to arise. And the main group that will be used to deployed in order to prevent this will be the Jews. So the first example was Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was a black nationalist from Jamaica who had a large following in Harlem, and he was destroyed by the NAACP, which is a national association for the advancement of colored people, which was a Jewish organization. The Jews would not allow any, the blacks to have their own ethnic identity or ethnic solidarity. They destroyed Marcus Garvey, and the same thing happened in that battle between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Malcolm X was for uh, black nationalism, black solidarity, he, uh, and, and uh, he was murdered. Martin Luther King was also murdered, but he was basically involved uh, with the Jews. This was the high point of the Black Jewish Alliance. His fundraiser was a Jew because they were promoting integration. The Jews promote integration for every group but themselves. They do not want other nationalisms arising or other forms of ethnic solidarity arising because they can't control these groups. Same thing is going on in Europe right now with weaponized migration. Okay, what they want to do is destroy, look, destroy the majority culture. A Barbara Lerner Specter has said this. You can Google this type of thing. There are one Jewish 
uh, uh, leader after another has said basically that uh, Europe has to be taught a lesson. And the lesson is you have no right to your ethnic solidarity. You have no right to be to exclude people of other races. You have to allow them to come in in enormous numbers and basically destroy your culture. That's that's the situation now. That was the situation in the United States of America. And that was how the Jews weaponized uh, blacks in America. They're still doing it. George, that the Black Jewish Alliance collapsed in 67 and George Soros resurrected it in 2016, I believe, when uh, the riots took place in Ferguson and he gave Black Lives Matter $33 million. It's the same story. They've, Jews have been trying to orchestrate race war in the United States ever since the lynching of Leo Frank, and they're doing it now, today. Uh, Alan, do you have any replica or any other question about this topic? Well, I, I'm not so um, so experienced in the field of racial diversity because we have next to zero here in Slovenia. But um, as a Catholic, I mean, um, my favorite cardinals are Cardinal Arinze and, um, and of course... Um, well, I, f I forgot the name now, <laughs> but they're both black, you know. So, um, I mean, as Dr. Jones stated, uh, we, we should just shift the, the, the narrative to, to not being just black or white, but different categories. Like, we should be more proud, if I say like that, uh, to being Catholic, for instance. Right. Uh, well, I think th I, th this is our identity and we should I mean, emphasize that. You're absolutely that. right. You're absolutely right. Alish had me on with uh, Frody Mityard. Uh, Frody Mityard is a classic example of what uh, of the white guy in Europe. And it's basically uh, a function of the collapse of Protestantism. Frody's a Norwegian. He was baptized as a Lutheran in the Norwegian state church. Uh, he speaks Norwegian. Uh not many people speak Norwegian in this world. You would think that this to this combination of being a Lutheran speaking Norwegian in a climate which is most one of the most inhospitable in the world would unite these people. But what happened over this period of time, over the period of his lifetime, is that the Lutheran church evaporated in Scandinavia. Well, that created a vacuum and nature abhors a vacuum. So what happened with these people is they lost their religious identity and they're trying to replace it with a racial identity, which makes no sense whatsoever in that context. No sense whatsoever. I asked, I asked Frody, uh, when did, uh, was Eric the red, white? And then I said, well, when did the Norwegians become white? I did this similar thing when uh, Alish, another program that Alish had when, uh, Who's the Croatian now? I'm, uh, I'm blanking out. Sunich. Yeah, Tom Sunich comes on. I said, Tom, when did you become white? Because I know when the English speakers became white because it's in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, according to uh, print, uh, historical principles. First time white is applied to people is something like 1613. There's a play in which there's an Indian who says the white people. That's the first time it was ever used in the English language. 
this corresponds to Virginia, the Virginia colony, where you had basically black chattel slaves uh, from Africa, and you had white, or if you want to call them that, indentured slaves from England, Ireland, and Scotland. They came together. Only when you come together like that do you become black or white. Before that time, you have an identity that doesn't need those uh, doesn't need those uh, uh, distinguishing characteristics. So the Catholics are especially, uh, what should I say, uh, uh, secure in this regard because they're part of a church that is not a national church like the Protestant churches were. Obviously, you've got all kinds of different people. If if the, the ch church is the universal church for the entire world, obviously, we're going to have all different kinds of people in this church, different races at different stages of development. But the, the distinction is not going to be racial. It's not going to be racial. It's going to be uh, it's going to be ethnic because of the language you speak and the, and the level of development is going to depend basically, on when Catholicism arrived in your country. And I experienced this in, as I said before, when I was in Tanzania, there was a, uh, a, a collaboration between the Diocese of Würzburg and the Diocese of Mbinga in, in Tanzania uh, for the production of coffee so that they get a decent price for their coffee. And the, the brochure has Diocese of Mbinga founded 1987, Diocese of Würzburg, 730. Well, what you're talking about here, the different level of development is not because of race. It's because of a thousand years of the Catholic Church teaching people how to work productively through groups like the Benedictines, who precisely the people who taught the Germans how to work effectively. You just sail down the Dan. I did it myself. Go down the Danube Valley and you'll see all of these Benedictine monasteries where they taught the Germans how to raise fruit. Uh, uh, farming as opposed to chasing pigs through the forest, which is what they did up until that time. So basically the, the Deutsche Wurzeln are, are basically Dominican uh, Wurzeln. Would you say that when Germans say about their, their supposed um, Germanic roots where they, uh, uh, they would talk about, their um, know-how uh, to work and the will to work and so forth, they basically mean uh, what the Dominicans brought to them. No, 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 no. Benedictine. No? Uh, Benedictine. Uh, I'm sorry, Benedictines, yeah. Benedictine. The Dominicans came much later. I mean, there was a, there was a definite Dominican presence. Uh, Albertus Magnus in Cologne was a Dominican. They had a big impact, but that's much later. That's that's the high Middle Ages. That's the 13th century. I'm talking about the beginning of Christianity in the German-speaking world. I'm talking about Boniface, the Englishman, Winifred, who came over and converted them, and then those settlements up and down the Danube and, and the Rhine. Those settlements of Benedictine monasteries were crucial in the development of German work habits. There's no way to get around it. If, uh, it's, and the point is that you don't develop these habits overnight. The main problem in East Africa is the inability to mobilize labor. That is the main problem. And I think I've, I've tried, I've saw this, I said this before, but I think the main problem in East Africa was polygamy. And I think polygamy inhibited 
the successful mobilization of labor because basically polygamy, you're creating your workforce out of your children. And so you need lots of women so you can create a large workforce. This is not a, a, a productive way to mobilize labor. This goes all the way up to Julius Nerera. Julius Nerera was president, the founding president. He, he died, I believe, in the 70s. No, I, di I died in 1980. So we're not, we're not talking about something in ancient history now. His father had 17 wives. Uh, his brother had eight. Uh, he, he once asked his brother, why do you have so many wives? And he said, uh, because uh, I need them to work on my farm. And Nereri said, get a tractor. Well, that was classic Nereri because he loved the Soviet Union and he thought you could industrialize agriculture in the same way they did in the Soviet Union. That was a failure too. But the crucial issue is the relationship between polygamy and, and poor labor organization. That's part of what, and that is recent. That's not a long time ago. So if you can imagine what Germany would be like, uh, let's say in 770 as opposed to 740, because that's the type of time frame we're talking about. Did, did, were the Germans building BMWs in Germany in 770? No. No, it took them a thousand years to learn how to work. And that's the type of time frame that, that, that I don't know whether that's got, always the case, but you're talking about a significant period of time where these habits, people have to learn these habits. I, I shouldn't forget about me unmuting. Um, Peter Dotz is asking a question. Uh, I'm not aware of the of the guy or the the, the phenomena. Do do you know anything about it? Can you comment on Malachi Martin? Oh, Malachi Martin. Malachi Martin. Yeah. Malachi Martin. Yeah. Yes, he was a, a crucial figure in Vatican II, uh, a Jesuit uh, who had been basically recruited by Jewish organizations, uh, the B'nai B'rith and the American Jewish Committee to uh, change the church's teaching on who killed Christ. In other words, his job was to exonerate Christ, uh, exonerate the Jews from any responsibility in killing Christ. He was, he was a, a protege of Cardinal Bea, and Cardinal Bea was basically responsible for the, doc, the document that came to be known as Nostritate, which was a document on non-Christian religions. That document did not do that. It did not do that. Now, I say that with this emphasis because you just have rabbi. Just the other day, I have Rabbi James Rudin writing a, a, an article on the 55th anniversary of Nostra Aetate saying that the Second Vatican Council absolved the Jews from any responsibility for the death of Christ. That is not true. That's a lie. But the, because the Jews control the media, they control the interpretation. And that, is, that lie has become widespread in our day. They did not succeed. If you read the chapter in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit on Malachi Martin, you will see that the Jews were very disappointed. They all admitted that they failed because the church had reiterated in an erratic fashion the, stand, the teaching of, of the church by saying, not all Jews at the time of uh, Christ called for his death. That means, uh, I know there are people who are going to quibble about the logic here, but 
I mean, some Jews did call for his death. We knew that. Okay. It's in the gospel. Nothing's going to change the gospel account. Nothing's going to change uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, where uh, St. Paul said the Jews are the people who killed Christ and they're enemies of the entire human race. Nothing is going to be able to change the Acts of the Apostles, where St. Peter goes to Jerusalem and says to the Jews, you killed Christ. You can't change that. No council can change it. No pope can change it. You do not. The church does not have veto power over the gospel. All they can do is transmit it as faithfully as they can. And, and they carry the biggest burden because they are the closest to the truth and they are the first one to reject the truth. That's right. That's Rationally. Right. They have a heavy burden to carry, and we are suffering for 2,000 years. We have suffered because of their rejection of uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, that is the gist of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. They became revolutionaries at the foot of the cross when they rejected the Logos incarnate. And that's what they are today, to this day, to this day. And, and being intentionally stubborn. Right. You, you have this, this uh, kind of... They never lost the sense that they were God's chosen people. Okay, but that they that sense of God's chosen people has com become completely disconnected from the scriptures or their historical mission as the Hebrew people uh, and being faithful to God's word. It's completely lost on them. And now they see their identity as part of these rev revolutionaries. Antifa is a revolution, is a Jewish movement. Just look into its roots. The Jews brag about this. This is the legacy of that rejection of Logos. Do you think they believe in an end game? Is there an end game? Sure, there's an end game. History has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we know that the end is going to have something to do with uh, Jerusalem. And so there are Jews who think that they can rebuild the temple. And if they start, uh, I think that sounds like an end game scenario to me. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's, that would be serious. But it wouldn't end well for them. <laughs> well, let's look at the last time they tried to rebuild the temple. Okay, I have a chapter on that in the Jewish revolutionary spirit as well. They tried to do this under Julian the Apostate. And every, every group, you know, the Arians, the Catholics, and the pagans all agreed that if, the, if they succeed, if the Jews succeed, that Christianity was a hoax, it was a failure, and we can forget about it. And so they had the most powerful man on earth bringing his most uh, skilled engineer, Olypius, from Great Britain. Britain, that's not Great Britain. Uh, and uh, bringing him to Jerusalem. They, they clear women to come from, Jewish women come from all over the Mediterranean basin to help clear the rubble away from the foundation. And the stone, first stone comes down. And as soon as it touches the foundation, fire erupts from the earth and it kills everyone everyone. And so there are stories of the women, they're running to a chapel, you know, for, re for uh, refuge. And suddenly a burning cross appears on the door of the chapel and they all get incinerated. That's, that's the truth. You can read it. It's a historical fact. Some Jews admit it. Some Jews try to rationalize it. Great Heinrich Greitz, the father of Jewish historiography, said it was under underground gas deposits that exploded all kinds of rationalization. But the fact is that what God once destroyed, no man can build. That was the lesson that Julian Apostate had to learn the hard way. If I may just 
go way back when we started to talk. I wanted to say one thing, uh, but before it's Cardinal Sarah is the second one. Right, I was going to say and, that, but yeah. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. No problem, no problem. I mean, we're debating. So, but the the thing I wanted to say is when we talked about uh, the battle between pro life and pro abortion, uh, regarding to to your book Libido Dominandi, could you for for uh, the people that are watching the show at the moment and that will be watching later, just make um, like a sort of a timeline what would happen. In case the, the the abortion laws fall, so that abortion becomes illegal again or criminalized. Um, I well, mean, they, everything falls. I, I mean, the the the, the modern uh, society, pr promiscuity society, uh, degenerate society collapses. Everything falls. Right, right. It, it, well, first of all, there will not be an anti-Roe versus Wade. There will not be a law criminalizing abortion uh, issuing from the Supreme Court. What I think is going to happen is the Supreme Court will simply say it's up to the states to decide. And at that point, you will have a replication of the electoral map today because Trump is unequivocally pro-life and Biden is unequivocally pro-abortion. And so you will have a replication of the map which means that the entire center of the country will probably make uh, criminalize abortion. And what, what has happened already in New York and California, Governor Cuomo has made it, made it a super right in the state of New York. He's made it a, basically a sacrament uh, for the people of New York. And he's told people, if you don't like it, if you're pro-life, leave, go someplace else. That is leading to this kind of division in the country. And I think if, the Supreme Court uh, does something, and I think they will. It will go back to the states, and the states have already uh, criminalized abortion. States in the middle of the country have already done that, and as soon as it gets to the Supreme Court, it gets overturned, or some some court below it would get overturned. I think. What, what would that bring? What would that bring? What would be scenario? Uh, there will regarding be the society, our now, everyday you mean, life. You mean how will it happen in the United States? No, no, what would be the consequences? Consequences be. Yes. The consequences will be further polarization. You, you, it, will be a group, it will be further division in the United States. You will have two groups of people who call themselves Americans who cannot talk about something this fundamental. One group's calling it a sacrament. The other group's calling it a, an abominable crime. They can't talk to each other. You cannot talk across this divide. Uh, right? But it's already happening. And I think... The 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 the, the uh, we say like the, the the logical thinking about this is that only one group can survive. I mean, it's it's mathematic. So only the group that lets their children leave uh, will survive. Now, you're talking, and not you're talking about the long-term demographic effects of widespread contraception and abortion. You're right. Yes. Yes. They will, they will be replaced, and that has happened. That has already happened. Okay, the fact that I'm talking about the center of the country this way is a sign that this has already happened. We've been going, we've had anti-abortion demonstrations for over 40 years now in Indiana and uh, in downtown South Bend. And the, the pro-life side gets bigger and bigger every year. And the pro-abortion side gets smaller and smaller. But this is this was never uh, something that was the popular will 
in America. It was imposed on us by the Supreme Court of the United States. So it's always been an elite imposition from the top. And as I, again, that came out in this election. You're voting for the elites or the people in this election. Biden is supporting abortion. That's an elite form of control, population control over the population. And uh, sexual life as well. Absolutely. Promiscuity and stuff like that. This was also, again, a form of imposition, imposition from above. But what, what you see here, of course, is for every woman who has an abortion becomes a potential recruit for the Democratic Party. And uh, if you're talking about millions of abortions, you're talking about millions of women who, who are faced with the existential choice of either I admit that I did something wrong and I repent and I'll never do it again, or I am going to join with other people who have committed this crime and we are going to form a political movement that now controls the Democratic Party and we will uh, we will stick with this program till death. That, that's what happened over the, the Democratic Party by, uh, or the Supreme Court by uh, allowing women to have abortions created the cadre, one of the most powerful cadres in the Democratic Party. Alan, before I ask Dr. Jones a question um, about uh, Father Charles Coughlin and his relationship with President Roosevelt during World War II, uh, I, I would like to ask you, uh, what, what do you think, what do you mean, um, what's um, with Catholics in Slovenia and abortion? Is it is it similar to to what's going on in America, or is it uh, still a little bit more more conservative than? Oh yeah, well we're conservative. I mean, because in in that case, uh, the United so the, the people in the United States, especially Catholics and pro life pro life movement, is very progressive, because being conservative in those terms would be supporting abortion. But uh, in this case, being progressive is to be pro-life. But we have two problems regarding this topic. So the first is uh, we don't have any public politicians that would be supporting uh, life as Trump and uh, the people around him are doing. We have zero people in, in high levels of politics here in Slovenia that would do something like that. And the second problem is, and the problem is the same in America regarding the Catholics, uh, because I think, and Dr. Jones would know more about it, that uh, pro-life movements in the United States have maybe some Catholics in it, but there are people from different religious groups as well. Uh, in Slovenia, it's mostly Catholic movement. And the problem is, uh, as we could see with vote voters for Biden, uh, 49% of Catholics voted for Biden. And that's the problem as well uh, here in Slovenia. We, we have modernist, um, basically anti-Catholic Catholics. So chances to, to improve pro-life movement in Slovenia are next to zero. I mean, only by God's grace. I would have to say, though, that the right to life movement is largely Catholic in the United States. It's not to yeah. say there aren't other evangelicals, Protestants, but it's a largely Catholic movement. 
oh well okay i mean it's the same here in slovenia but if i would uh, uh what alash asked is in in general society could we start um striving for some anti-abortion policies and stuff like that i think in slovenia it's it's impossible it's impossible because of those two things so we don't have politicians our right-wing parties like sds and uh, nova slovenia and stuff like that when you ask them are you against abortion they don't have the guts they don't have the balls they just they they are afraid to say yes we are and i think even if they would have strength to say it they wouldn't mean it i think they're not can, against can abortion. you ask them if they're in favor of killing slovenians i mean there aren't a whole, there aren't a whole lot of you to begin with are there uh, you, need, you need every Slovenian that you that you have out there. Why would they Why would they allow the murder of Slovenians? Why would they allow that? Yeah, political points. You need votes, and and majority of people in Slovenia are the boomer generation, and you need their votes. And they are, I mean, if you have more than three kids in Slovenia, you're strange, even from Catholic point of view. And we, we, we've had this for, for decades now. Uh, they've been telling us that uh, we can be replaced. It you doesn't matter. You, you and we will replaced. be replaced. If you don't have children, you will be replaced. I, look, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm familiar with the situation in Germany because I lived there and I did a lot of research. And uh, they were a conquered country. Uh, this, I, you know, this is obvious. Uh, but after World War II, they were subjected to a ruthless form of social engineering that involved the sexual moral corruption of the women of Germany. Uh, it's, it was involved pornography. It was all of the, the major uh, magazines, illustrated magazines were the cutting edge of uh, media at that point. And they were all in favor of sexual liberation. I watched it happen. I was a teacher there in the 70s. Uh, and this is when those films would come out. The uh, Schulmädchen Report, Dreizehnte Folge, Hausfrau Report, Dreizehnte Folge. All these movies, softcore porn movies, were deliberately targeting the young people uh, to corrupt their sexual morals. And they succeeded. They succeeded. And now they're a completely docile population where everyone's afraid to, to, to say anything. I think between you and me that the COVID protest, which was so strong in Germany, one of the strongest in the world, uh, uh, is basically a covert protest against American social engineering because they can't address the issue directly. It's too dangerous. If you were to talk about Jewish influence in Germany. I mean, you, you can't do You can't even think about that. So this was a way of getting out in the street and protesting uh, 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 using COVID as a surrogate for social engineering. Yeah, and I, I you know, it's funny for me because <clears throat> I see um, from different point of views the only solution in be returning to traditional Catholic faith, so to, to Catholic faith. Um, and, and you can see that on so many levels why, why it works and why it's necessary. Uh, so not just like to, to have this spiritual life and um, eschatological view, but also demographically. Right. So when I see my traditional Catholic friends all over the world and I have them, uh, they have, they're married, they have at least four or five, if not even more children, 
they are well situated, they know how to handle money, they have high morals and stuff like that, and they are the, the foundation of their society. And this is what we need. We need strong Catholic men. That's right. And You're families right. as well. I agree with you. I agree. Look, I've been saying that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not the guy who's telling you to go out and you know, become a white guy. I've been saying that Catholicism is the way to turn this around. And and I think it's happening. I, I, I'm going to share you something. I just, just got this on Facebook. Uh, an Iranian just wrote to me and said that uh, he's been following my work and he's become a Catholic. Well, good. Thank you. I think it's a good idea. I think that Catholic Church is the vehicle of Logos in human history that is still true today in spite of all the troubles the church is going through and that, that only that is going to provide the foundation for any type of uh, successful life in this world uh, and a successful future. So I agree with you. And it works. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm addressing the... Uh, the followers of Alesh at the moment, because I know there's many pagans among them, um, and I, I have dispute with, uh, disputes with them because uh, they are trying to mock uh, my Catholic faith and um, that it's basically just a Jewish invention and stuff like that. But I'm mocking them because they're mostly simps or incels um, without any without being in serious relationship, let alone having any children. And I'm just trying to invite them to come and start being a man because it works. It, it's it's efficient. It's possible. It is possible. And I think we, we owe uh, Alash a debt of gratitude for enabling this conversation, for allowing us to say this to, to the people there, even if they could, if they don't like what they're saying, what they're hearing. Uh, exactly. Uh, I'm grateful to Alash for this opportunity. Yeah, uh, and imagine many people say to me that I'm uh, I'm I'm too conservative and uh, not open towards uh, discussions and so forth. <laughs> um, I'm joking. The same thing about me. They say the same thing about me. As they're shutting yeah. down my website, shutting me, banning me from YouTube. You know, you're intolerant. Yeah, we're the intolerant ones. Yet right. we all well, I'm, want I'm to. Trying to talk. <laughs> <laughs> but you know we're not here to be tolerant we're here to speak the truth so yeah but we want to speak it we, yes. we're not a yes we'd like to be able to talk i i think i think uh, this is a we can make a persuasive case here if you allow us to talk and furthermore the fact that you're banning may mean that you the censors admit that we're being effective because if we weren't being effective you wouldn't have to ban us uh interesting thought in slovenia the communists with their communist ideology managed to divide the slovenes into the two groups who hate each other this same scenario is now being implemented in the united states Class Your well, if, if I may just jump in, it was not two groups that hated each other. It was one group that hated another and the other group that defended against the first group. So it was the communists, the atheists that were that hated everything that was Catholic in Slovenian nation and the Catholics that defended themselves against the communists. Marian Tarce asks something about Archbishop Vigano. 
Dr. Jones? Yes, he gave a talk. Uh, God bless Archbishop Vigano. Whenever he talks about the Vatican intrigue, uh, he knows what he's talking about. But he's come late to the, I mean, in terms of the big picture, I think he still needs, he's got problems here. Uh, first of all, because he's blaming the problems on Freemasonry, which is completely irrelevant to the discussion right now. Uh, and I suspect that he, he does this because he wants to be polite and wants to fit in polite company. And the first thing that will get you banned from polite company is mentioning the Jews. Okay, so we, ha we have to get over that. Okay, we have to break the Jew taboo because that is a relevant category. Right now, as we speak, Antifa is a Jewish organization. George Soros, this is all relevant to our discussion here. Freemasonry has nothing to do with it. Uh, same thing with Taylor Marshall, his friend. Okay. Second thing, uh, you're blaming uh, the victim when you blame Vatican II. Vatican II did not create this problem. I've already explained to you the Jewish subversion of Vatican II that is going on today. You're doing the church no favors by basically... Uh, blaming 2,000 bishops. 2,000 bishops got together uh, at that council and, and they resisted the Jewish attempts at subversion for Nostra Tate, and they resisted the CIA attempt diversion for Dignitatis Humanae, which we have discussed. Dave Wemhoff has written the book called uh, John Courtney Murray, The CIA, Time, Life, and the CIA a long discussion there about the CIA efforts to basically have the church affirm the separation of church and state. The church did not do that. Dignitatis Humanae did not do that. And if Vigano is saying that it did, he needs to reread that document and he needs to, needs to understand, have a clear understanding of what actually happened during the Second Vatican Council. You were talking about separation uh, of church and state. Have you watched the latest um, talk of um, Jack, Jacob uh, Rees-Mogg? No. Talking about two swords? No. What did he say? Oh, he, he talks about two swords. So it's one, it's uh, secular, and the other one is spiritual, and we need to have both. So, um, in, so that, that, so he's the, you, you know, you know him. He's the. Uh, British. Um... I do. I know who he is. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I, yeah. Look, I we do. There are two swords. I agree with that. But uh, uh, the Bokelzun, the Taylor King of Munster, during the Anabaptist Rebellion, would walk through the town holding two swords. <laughs> okay. Now we know there are two swords, but when one man holds two swords, uh, especially when it's Bokelzun, the Anabaptist, uh, you can you can have problems. And there's always been a contest in, in Europe between the secular power and, and the papacy or, or, or the church. Okay, there's always a conflict. You can't solve that conflict by making them completely separate. That's the illusion of the United States of America. And it failed. If you have complete, absolute separation, all you're going to, uh, if that means you will eliminate the church from any input into the social order. And if you do that, you will guarantee rule by oligarchs, rule by the rich and the powerful, because the church is the only institution that stands up to the rich and the powerful. Okay? Uh, that was the problem in America. So over this period of time, you had this progressive secularization because they didn't understand. The Americans didn't understand the proper relationship between church and state. 
They wanted to, uh, the proliferation of sects. They were Protestants. They thought the more the merrier, the more Protestant sect, the more sects we have, the less power each individual sect has. And that allows us to, to govern without any type of interference. That's the gist of the uh, separation of church and state. That's not the Catholic teaching. The Catholic teaching is that there is an intimate connection between church and state. The church is the soul of the state. The church, the soul informs the body. It is not the body, but it informs the body. And the church informs the state on certain crucial issues, moral issues, for example, and sets the parameters of what is uh, possible for political debate. So if the church were in charge, they would simply say, I'm sorry, but abortion is not a debatable subject. Okay, you cannot violate the moral law in that egregious fashion. We're going to bracket that. You will not discuss that. That would be the proper relationship between church and state. Obviously, if it wasn't in America. Uh, and obviously, since America rules the world, it's had this uh, effect on Europe and places elsewhere. Well, uh, recently I'm dealing a lot with um, Christ's kingship, so uh, social kingship of Christ. And um, do, do you see this possible in the United States and how? It is not possible. It is happening as we speak. There has never been a time when God was not the ruler of human history. He is ruling it right now. This chaos that we are experiencing is part of God's plan. And, and uh, at this point, I, I'm trying to say that uh, the main way that God <laughs> works in human history is what Hegel said. It's the cunning of reason. It's allowing people their willfulness so that they bring about the exact opposite of what they intend. And that turns out to be God's will. So that's the that's the wrong way. I mean, that's there's a there's a better way to do it. And that would be what I just mentioned, where the, the church would be the soul of the state where the church would establish the parameters of what is proper political debate and strengthen the nation by uh, supporting the moral order and reacting uh, vigorously when the moral order is challenged. That is precisely what ha failed to happen in the United States of America. You had a group of people who had established a reputation for moral subversion. I'm talking about the Jews. They, they had established this reputation in Europe. Anyone who was there, the people in the United States knew about it. Charles Coughlin knew about it. To go back to the man you mentioned, uh, they when you they brought it up, and because the Jews controlled the media, these people were immediately demonized, isolated, and rejected. And as a result, what you had was increasing Jewish power, leading to increasing moral subversion, leading to the mess we're in today, which is the brink of revolution. Uh, by armies of people who uh, have been destroyed morally by their, their, their by their engaging in self-destructive sinful behavior. But it was never easy for Catholics in the United States. I think. No, they and were they were actually on brink of per persecution at one and, point. And I think they were better off at that point because if, if <laughs> because uh, when the Catholics were a ghetto. People and look, they were never stronger. The Catholic Church was never stronger in the United States than during the 1930s. And during oh, yeah. the 1930s, they were overwhelmingly ethnic. I mean, it was, you know, you you spoke, you know, if you if you went to these neighborhoods, you know, you spoke Italian or you spoke Polish. 
I mean, I, I, Henry Regnery, the famous conservative publisher, was a German from the, his family came from the Moselle Valley in Germany. And he told the story about the Chicago Symphony during World War I, where the conductor comes in and says, we're not allowed to speak German anymore. Never, not at all. Is that clear? And the guy in the back of the room says, was hat er gesagt? <laughs> This, is the, this was the reality of America at this time. And it was the Catholic reality. And those Catholics were strong because they controlled their ethnic neighborhoods politically. That's where they're, the, the, in other words, this persecution led to a kind of unity that gave them political strength. It's only after they were so-called accepted into the mainstream that they ran into trouble. And that happened precisely with the, John F. Kennedy becoming president. And then John Courtney Murray writes, he appears on the cover of Time magazine one month later, and he gives the orders to the Catholics. And one of the first things he said was, no boycotts. Well, what was he referring to? He was referring to the Legion of Decency, which wielded real political power and basically blocked the Jews from their program of moral subversion. He was saying, you can't do that anymore because now you're accepted. Well, that was, with acceptance like that, I prefer rejection. Dear gentlemen, dear gentlemen, any final, uh, final thoughts? We are going through a crisis, uh, but God has never uh, been absent from human history. And I think it's just up to us to see this crisis leading to some type of resolution, some type of positive resolution, a rejection. Uh, uh, think for a moment of the reversal that will take place if uh, Trump uh, does get uh, vindicated by the courts. Think of, think of the, the absolute defeat that the mass media will have when they have to admit that, oh, wait a minute, it turns out Joe Biden wasn't the president-elect. That type of reversal is distinctly possible right now, even at, at, when it seems dark. That's the type of reversal that took place uh, when Jesus Christ was crucified. I mean, imagine the way the apostles felt on Saturday after the crucifixion. It was over. And then one day later, there was a dramatic reversal. This is the way God works in human history. It's this dramatic type of reversal. And I, when I finished the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, I think the last sentence of that book is, reversal is in the air. That's what I'm seeing. Well, my closure would be, we have to return. We have to build an age of kings again. We have to return to the kings on three levels. We have to position ourselves as men of the households, as kings in our homes. We have to return the kings in our societies, either as mayors or state leaders. We have to have kings, strong, manly, really pious figures. And we have to bring back uh, the, the kingship of Christ into our societies. And I, I see I see a great future for the United States in, in that point of view. Um, and um, Baron the first would be a great United States monarch and uh, he would have Slovenian roots. 
that's it. Uh, great thoughts, uh, great evening, great day for 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 Dr. Jones. Uh, thank you guys once again for accepting my invitation. Uh, thank you for your uh, uh, for you being very informative, uh, to being very concise, intelligent in your comments. Um, I hope we can meet uh, soon again. Thanks to the viewers, and uh, I have to. I don't. Um, uh, uh, before I forget, please uh, subscribe to Alan's channel. It's the first traditional. Yeah, if I may, yeah. Alesh, if I may, because I see the the public uh, is quite uh, interested in those topics. Uh, on Sunday at nine, we will be discussing on our channel what I was saying before. So the monarchy, the possibilities of monarchy in the United States, and uh, scenarios like that. So maybe if someone is interested. Peace be upon Alesh, Jones, and Koman. Uh, with this great thought, I'm saying goodbye, good evening, good afternoon, and see you soon, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.